Hi there, everyone. I'm Mark Isero, and this is Article Club, where we read and discuss one great article every month about race, education, or culture. And we invite the author to participate, too. On today's episode, we have C.J. Hauser answering our questions about her outstanding essay, The Crane Wife, which went viral last summer after being published in the Paris Review. You're going to really like this interview for the simple fact that Ms. Hauser is wonderful. I'm really, really happy that she said yes to Article Club. One last thing before we begin, though, I want to announce that we're going to be discussing The Crane Wife online all together on Saturday. March 21st at 4 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. And Ms. Hauser is going to be joining us, which is pretty amazing. So if you want to be in on that discussion, if you're not signed up or if you're just randomly listening, you can definitely do that. You need to sign up. Just go to highlighter.cc slash discussion. All right. With that, let's get right to the interview. Thank you so much for doing this. I asked you and then you said yes. So thank you for that. (laughs) You're welcome. I'm super excited to be a part of what seems like a really cool community project. Yeah, that's the first question that we have for you. Like you said yes. How come you said yes in the first place? I mean, I actually think I, I have a book club envy. I have a lot of friends who are in very interesting book clubs and I've never been a part of a successful book club before. And I think that the idea of having... I don't know, articles, like recent articles as the focus is such a smart idea, both because it's like manageable time-wise, but also it seems like it's meant to prompt discussions about issues that are being brought up by the pieces, which is, that's like all I want in life is for people to fight about, share about issues that matter together in community spaces. That's honestly, like as a teacher, the gold standard for me. Yeah, you just said an even better a uh, reason than I have for the article club. So thank you. I might steal that. So thank you for that. <laughs> I want, and we all want to thank you for writing The Crane Wife. It's, a, it's absolutely beautiful. When I found it, actually Anne found it and showed it to me, I was like, this has to be in the highlighter and we need to talk about it. And so I just want to thank you so much for, for writing it. Our first question is, can you take us back to when you wrote it last year and what was happening and how you decided to write it? Sure, so I am a fiction writer mostly, but nonfiction seems to keep happening to me. And I had been, I'd been trying to write this essay about specifically the the field science trip that I took for a long time. Like I took notes after I got back because I knew it had been really important to me and I'd sort of drafted some material, but the essay sort of never, I don't know, it never came together the way I wanted it to. And then I think people probably know that when it comes to be novel publishing time, your your publisher looks at you and says, could you write a true story about your life so people can know a little bit about you and it helps people to get interested in the book. And, And that trip was research for Family of Origin. So I was like, well, I could write this essay that I've been sort of working on about whooping cranes. Also, I guess I called off a wedding. And of course they were like, oh, please write about that. And so, I went about it at first feeling sort of, I don't know, not great about the idea of talking about my personal life and talking about my problems because what I wanted people to care about were the problems about the planet and habitats for birds, but it didn't feel genuine to write about what that week meant to me without sort of giving the larger context 
of my life. And I wound up feeling really glad that I wrote it, uh, but it's been a new and overwhelming experience to sort of dive deeper into the nonfiction world. Absolutely. What about that process? At first you said it wasn't quite right, and then you were pushed to sort of like write something. How did you move from the first sort of thoughts to getting it through? Yeah, so I think that the first thoughts were really just like, I love this landscape. I love this uh, nature preserve, the Aransas Preserve in, um, it's outside of Corpus Christi, Texas. And I just wanted to bring that place alive to people so that they would care about it. And so that's where I was at when I first started writing about it. And then once I started being a little more honest about sort of, I don't know, the fact that I had just called off a wedding and that I was pretty heartbroken and, and low, then I realized that there were more things to be learned from the experience than I had at first considered. So it was beyond the ecological at that point. And I think it's, it's a tricky business. I think it can be somewhat dangerous to sort of insert your own life and problems into other kinds of narratives that sort of deserve top billing. But I guess it becomes the kind of essay where it shows how I am experiencing the world and what these experiences mean to me. And I have this kind of like David Attenborough planet Earth style hope that like if someone else can show you how a space is meaningful to them in a variety of ways, then maybe it will become meaningful to other people. And I think I was trying to leave out key meaning making parts of the experience and, and that wound up being the key to getting it to come together as a piece. I really like how you emphasize the ecological and then the space and then the planet and how that was, I guess, maybe your first or primary sort of drive. Would that be true? No, definitely. That's why I wanted to write the essay in the first place. So when it comes out and it gets published in the Paris Review and it goes huge, <laughs> uh, first, like, when did you first know that this was going to be a big deal? I, yeah, <laughs> it was a wild time. I was just so excited that the piece was going to be published in the Paris Review, frankly. It's, I've read the Paris Review for years. You sort of grow up in its shadow as a young writer in a lot of ways. And I think it's a really ex exciting time for the Paris Review. They have a lot of female leadership over there, Emily Nemens and Nadja Spiegelman in particular. And so I was excited to be a part of this like moment of the Paris Review as a feminist. So I don't know, I already felt like it was a big deal and I was really excited about it. Um, but then it was on Twitter and, and Twitter <laughs> is, is its own kind of ecosystem. And I don't know, I think it was around when friends started texting me and saying like, hey, my friend sent me this essay, is this you? Or when people whose work I really respected started sharing it, that's when I started losing my mind and feeling like, oh God, what is happening? Yeah, I mean, something huge was happening. And folks obviously really connected extremely deeply. And because it's a personal piece, do you remember sort of like the first reactions? And did folks mostly go for the personal part about your relationship? Or do you feel like right from the beginning, folks were understanding the space, environment, sustainability, that piece? I think that mostly it was people responding to the idea of needs and the idea of sort of recognizing and validating your own needs that I saw trotting around a lot. And I saw in an exciting way, I guess I saw people, well, it's exciting and it made me sad. That's the thing, the response of so many people saying, oh my God, this feeling, I have had this feeling too or this story that 
you were telling yourself about your life and how you were supposed to be in it. Like I told myself that story too. I mean, that makes me sad because that was a really hard and sad time in my life. And the fact that so many other people have been there does not bring me joy. But the fact that so many people had that experience that I know I value in literature and that has meant something to me where I'm like, oh, I recognize this thing. I'm so glad to see it out in the world so I can sort of understand it outside of myself better. So that felt really wonderful and humbling and rewarding. Yeah, definitely. And I wanted to ask, because this piece is about so much, I just wanted to ask what you really feel it's about. And I guess the reason I'm asking is you just talked about how folks really connected with the story, as well as like that it's about needs. And then of course, it's about like space and environment. And then also at the beginning of the piece, it's about being seen and noticed. And we had a question about, do you see these as similar and overlapping? Or was your intent to sort of see that that these um, things are different? Do you know, I think the sort of, how to say this, I think along the process for me when I write nonfiction, I know that I'm drawn to subject matter and sometimes pretty diverse subject matter for inside of one essay. And it's the process of writing the essay that sort of brings them together and I understand why I intuitively knew they had to live side by side in the first place. And after having written the piece, I think it's the idea that you can't separate I don't know, a creature from the environment it lives in is really what was at the heart of it for me. And that like studying moving cranes was not just looking at birds. It was understanding this whole system that it relied upon in order to be healthy and safe and stable. And then for me, thinking like, I just thought I could be the biggest, bravest dog all by myself and that it didn't matter what my environment was or what I was receiving or what was available to me inside of that space. And of course, it turns out I was very, very wrong about that. I mostly write essays about things I have been wrong about. This is what I'm interested in. And, and why is that? Why is that? Well, I don't know. I guess I'm only interested in staring at my own self if I'm trying to figure something out. The rest of the time, I'd rather make stuff up. It's much more fun. That's amazing. And you said also about the side-by-sideness, which is obviously a huge part of the structure of the piece. The juxtapositions are just really, really powerful. Can you say more about that? Um, is that just your normal style or did, did you reserve it especially for this piece? So there are a lot of writers who use either braided styles or sort of alternating styles like this, who I super admire. And Eulabis is one of them. I think she's sort of like a queen of that form. Um, Leslie Jameson also does amazing work that has that form. So it's a form I've, I've read before, but it's, it's become true. I've been working on a lot more nonfiction lately that it's sort of the only way I know to write about the real world and about my own life. And so I usually have these sort of vignette-like sections. And then in the writing process, I wind up with this crazy like murder board of index cards where all the different sections are laid out. And I'm constantly like putting them next to each other in different ways and moving them around to sort of understand how they're relating. And so, yeah, that's become my way of writing nonfiction for me, but it's something that I've definitely seen in a lot of other writers I admire's work as well. That's great. Can we talk about some of these cards that you move around? Oh my God, yeah. So I am working on an essay right now. It's about my family and my grandparents and my grandparents' death, but it's also about 
My mother's godparents, who wound up having a secret file taken out on them by the U.S. government, and they were accused of being spies in the 70s. And then it's also about the comedian John Belushi and his grave and how he was exhumed and moved across the cemetery. And just, I sort of knew all of these things had to go together. It felt correct to me. But I've got a lot going on. It's going to wind up being like a 40-page essay. And so I have dozens of cards sort of laid out on the little brick shelf here in my room in Oaxaca. And they say things like, Belushi is exhumed. And then there's one that says, unauthorized obituary of my grandmother. And then there's another one that says, Penn Kimball sues the government. And so there are a lot of different threads. And if I do my job right, it'll all come together in the end. But like, it's definitely not there yet. That's part of the play and the sort of sense of puzzle and discovery that I really enjoy in the process. Thanks so much for sharing that. I can totally see you moving the cards around. And it, <laughs> o- it obviously worked in uh, The Crane Wife. So right from the beginning, folks in the article club were really, really interested about how you set everything up. You, s- you used the word supposed or supposed several times in the first part what you were meant to do. You were obviously trying to drive that. But also at the same time, my sense is that you started off both serious and funny in tone, like finding your nylon hiking pants and plastic logs, you know, all that stuff. Uh, I thought that was amazing. And then can you sort of talk more about just that first piece? Like, obviously, the intro is so important. What was going through your mind as you wrote that? Yeah, actually, you hit upon two things that are pretty important to me as I think about how I'm interested in writing nonfiction and and what I'm interested in writing about. So one of the things is that I guess this is true of my life as well, is that I just believe in tragedy and comedy going together. That's been part why I'm writing about death and John Belushi, the comedian at the same time, like death and humor, tragedy and comedy. I just feel like they're totally linked in the way I, I see them. Maybe that's just my like crazy Irish family has taught me that. <laughs> but so yeah, so it's important to me to sort of, I don't know, to write humorously, to find the joy and the absurdity in moments of sadness, because it would be, it would also be dishonest to say like, I don't know, I didn't just like sit in bed and cry forever. I was like, crying and sad, but I was also buying crops for the first time. And like, why Why would we not be honest about sort of the relentless everydayness of any kind of grief? So that's part of it. The other part is the word supposed to. So I think there are a lot of stories and expectations that I sort of consume as narratives or stories for how a life is supposed to look. And I think that's a lot about what this essay It's a lot about what I'm trying to tackle in this essay too, is this idea of, I really thought something about calling off a wedding, even though, I mean, I have lived a life, bad things have happened to me. This is by no means the worst thing that has ever happened to me or to anyone, but it really rocked me in a way I hadn't anticipated. And I think it's because there's a kind of narrative expectation of what your life is supposed to look like and what you're supposed to be doing. And more than any other kind of hurt or tragedy I've experienced, a called off wedding just felt really disruptive to that narrative. And so I'm very curious and interrogating, even though I like to think of myself as an overeducated and self-aware person, there are still these stories that are at work in my brain. And it's like, I'm a feminist, I should know better than this, but I don't, I don't. These stories are still ticking away inside me and I'm still trying to sort of fit into them sometimes. So trying to figure out what those stories are, what I think I'm supposed to be doing is the first step in being able to, I don't know, chuck those narratives out the window and decide which other ones I want instead. 
You just said should, which is another sort of supposed to or meant to do. And I know so many people and folks in the article club that, that talk about the should. Is this something also that has been a part of your life for, for a long, long time, this idea of a shouldness? I think, I think I'm a person who tricked myself into thinking I didn't believe in should, that I, I think, you know, I've made some untraditional choices and I kind of do my own thing most of the time. And in that way, because I'm not a conventional person, I sort of got narcissistic enough to think like, oh, that doesn't like affect me. I'm not playing into those narratives or expectations. I'm outside of that. But, <laughs> excuse me, but none of us really are. And so it has been operating in my life, but perhaps in an even more pernicious way because I fancied myself unconventional. Yeah, that's, that's pretty deep. And also this idea that we are able to construct our own narratives as well as like this idea of uniqueness as well. So thank you for that. And also at the end of the intro, I wanted to ask about how you juxtapose time. You do two sentences right after the, each other, one that says 10 days earlier about how you were crying and yelling and driving away and ending the relationship. And then immediately after the 10 days later. And I noticed this throughout the piece, like how you use time, obviously the flashbacks. Can you say more about how you constructed that? Yeah, I think there's something about an event that feels like a schism in your life that encourages that kind of before and after time thinking. And I think that when I was considering not getting married. Um, I was so afraid of what my life would look like on the, it really felt to me like on the other side of that decision, it felt like, like a wall or something that if I climbed over, I didn't know it was over there. And so I guess symptomatic of the way I was feeling and fearing things beforehand is that sort of time marker. Mm -hmm. But then once I'm sort of with this lovely breakfast club of people on the Gulf, I just sort of realized like, oh, like this is just still life. It is still my life. And, and even though I'm on the other side of this time barrier, 10 days before, 10 days later, I mean, I'm still here. And so, yeah, time was important to me in the way as I was thinking about that event and how it would change my life and my fears around it. This club that you mentioned that you meet, it's just so vibrant. It's so filled with life and love. And it was just so amazing how you described it. How did you decide, were there, were there just the, those four people or were there more? How did you decide about who to include? And also, how did you decide how to characterize them? So first of all, I love our little crane club so much. There were only four of us. Normally there are more people on these trips. It was just a strange way the enrollments worked that year because they go out three times. Jeff and Lindsay did. And it just so happened that there was only me and Warren and Jan on this one trip. And we were such an unlikely bunch. And I, I need, so first of all, they've all, I sent the piece to everyone except for Warren. I didn't want to trouble Warren, so I didn't send it to him. But I've been getting texts because they're back on the Gulf. It's the time of year where they go to observe again. I'm getting texts from Jeff and it's a picture of Warren and he's on like his fifth expedition. He brought new good scotch. And so Warren has heard <laughs> secondhand from Jeff. Why do you think, I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but why do you think Warren would be troubled? I don't know. 
he's such a nice man. And I don't mean to, I'm, this is ageist of me, actually. It's horrible. Like, Warren has, like, seen some things and lived some life. We had very wonderful, I don't know, conversations together about stuff that really mattered. I just felt like he didn't need me sending my personal essay to him. I didn't yeah. want to talk with him. Yeah. Um, but in but, no way does it make me think, in no way did I think Warren would not have been sympathetic or lovely because he was the entire time we were on the trip together. Yeah, all of them were so wonderful. Lindsay, like, I could just see her making shapes and talking about the birds. It was fairly amazing. They were the coolest group ever. They really, really were. And so I'm hoping to go back again, because Jeff keeps going every year to accumulate data, obviously, over time. But that group in particular was just very, was very special. And it, it just, because I think we were so different we had such a bond, it just really reaffirmed for me that everything was going to be okay. <laughs> That's perfect. And not to sort of juxtapose and be a downer, but now let's contrast that obviously with your supposed to be in-laws in the, in the story from Christmas, the whole Beatrix Potter, which I first just want to ask you, did you know all about those stories and about Squirrel Nutkin before going into that? Yes, I grew up reading Beatrix Potter. I love Beatrix Potter, but I will say, I I suppose I had forgotten that Hunka Munka was actually pretty cool and like trashes a dollhouse and like smashes a fake ham. And so a lot of people on the internet came for me. <laughs> like, <laughs> why are you doing Hunka Munka this way? Like, it's really rude. So I, I do feel remorse about that. And I do feel, I feel some remorse too. I in no way thought this essay would ever be so widely shared. And my ex's family were very, very lovely people. They were good parents. They were good humans. They were all of those things. And I included that story because I just think it spoke a lot to, I don't know, the expectations that I was trying to fit inside of. And so I wanted to include it. But I just, I feel the need to say that like they were really, really good people. And yeah. Well, yeah, I understand. I mean, I understand how they might take it, but I, I, in the last part of that section, when you write, when I looked at that mouse with their broom, I wondered which one of us was wrong about who I was. It seems like you were really just grappling with who you were and how you were seen and how people saw you. I don't know if it was sort of like unfair to them, but I also want to highlight this because this was one of the first huge pieces that everybody in Article Club was like, okay, what's that about? What is that really about? What is she thinking? So I, I want to ask you that. Sure. I think I thought it was such a lovely gesture to be asked to be like, okay, like here's your place in the family. Here's your stocking. And like, how do you fit in? And how do you fit into this family as well as this Beatrix Potter stocking lineup? And I was really thoughtful about it because I'm a nerd like that. And so I really wanted to express like, here's who I am and I'm so glad to be here and here's who I am. And it felt very much like, well, actually that doesn't fit here, but here's what does fit. So here's, here's who you can be. That was not a person I wanted to be at all. But all mm -hmm. of a sudden I was like, well, maybe that is who I'm going to be. Maybe that is what it means to be getting married and joining a family in this way. It's another one of those supposed to be, should be's. And for a while I considered just sort of reconciling myself with that, but ultimately I couldn't. Is your process, did that happen in the moment? Or is that sort of more of a ruminative thing that happens over time? Later on, you talk about how you can survive with less. You can survive with less. I'm gonna be you know, the best wife. 
was that something that happened immediately or does that sort of processing happen over time? I mean, I was immediately like, hell no, I'm not that mouse. But I, on the <laughs> outside, was very busy trying to be a nice person at Christmas who yeah. was trying to be grateful, as I should have been, for like the kind act of having made me this object. And so I think in the moment I knew I was upset by it, but I was too busy trying to, you know, exist in the room and, and be a good citizen to really unpack it. And then later I was like, why does this bother me so much? One thing in that moment, and then also later on when you talk about your ex-fiance, is this idea of self-talk and specifically negative self-talk that a lot of people in the article club connected uh, with. Uh, Karina, who's part of the club, said, well, I would never say that to a friend who came to me with you know, their story about their ex or what happened with them and their, with their in-laws. But she said also that she finds herself being really, really hard on herself. Is that something that you were trying to get at as well? Yeah, I think so. Um, I, I do think that's something, I, th I think that the way that I talk to myself inside my own head, if, if someone talked to one of my, thank you, Karina, like if someone talked to one of my friends that way, I would fight them. I'd be like, stop talking to her that way. But it's, it's different inside the house. And, and some of it is just negativity, but I think it's also, it's about self-sufficiency and it's about wanting to be strong and this is a thing that I did myself I'm not trying to blame anything outside of myself but I do think it's it's kind of a way I understood feminism wrong that I wasn't meant to need things and to rely on things and certainly not to need things from men and that that would be a sign of my own personal failings and so I think that self-talk came from that weird misunderstanding of feminism that I had somehow created. Yeah, that's interesting that you also bring up feminism too, because several folks in the article club were talking about uh, the patriarchy and society's expectations of women and specifically what you center on also, which is this idea that neediness is weakness. Michelle in the club was saying that happiness, especially for women, is only if you earn it. Only, a only after you go through all of the hoops and also after you sort of like negate your needs. And so she just really connected with this. Um, and then you go and you meet your crane group and there's just joy and love and happiness right from the beginning. And it's about, and, and all you're doing is that you're counting berries. I mean, it's amazing. I think I really love that idea that happiness well I, I hate the idea but I, I like that she brought it up that happiness is something you feel like you have to earn as a woman and I think the thing that I so often say when something good has happened to a woman that I love is oh my god you deserve this and like in my mind that's a way I don't know I love when people say that to me and so I say that to other people but now that I'm thinking about it maybe I should stop saying that like maybe that's actually quite fraught and it implies that like Happiness cannot be like a naturally occurring thing. It has to be something that you sort of struggle toward. I don't know. I'm going to be thinking about that for a while. This is, this is thinking out loud, but I'm interested in that comment. Yeah, I, I am too. And I think that, yeah, there's this whole thing about deserving and there's all this sense about being worthy. And, and it's definitely something that came up over and over again in your piece. There's just so many different parts that we can talk about. Like, for example, the wild pigs. You had an expectation, you, you bet on three, and then Warren says 20. I mean, it was unheard of. 
I mean, that's just Lauren all over. <laughs> it was, I don't know, these little rituals, these little everyday rituals that we developed over the course of the trip came to mean so much to me. And the way that I was... I realized I was self-protecting by betting low, by minimizing expectations in that moment. It, it was a bummer. It was a real bummer when I understood that's what I was doing. And it does have to do with safety and self-protection, I think. But I don't think if Warren had bet on 20 pigs and we didn't see 20 pigs, he would have been devastated or thought that he wanted too much from the world. And like, that was, that was his wisdom and it was his wisdom, I think as an older person, but also just as a smart person. Uh, and I really appreciated it. Yeah, me too. Just, just the idea that there's more, there can be more and that expectations can be more rather than just limiting all the time. Um, it's just absolutely a beautiful scene that for me came out of nowhere. It was like, okay, she's going to be talking about these wild pigs. What, what is exactly happening? So that was amazing. Um, right after this scene comes out of nowhere again, the piece about the crane wife, the, the folktale. And I just have to be honest, like, here's the title of the crane wife. I had no idea. And then you put this in the middle of the piece and it totally was heartbreaking. It came as a surprise, not just for me, but for other article club members. And I guess my first question about it is, did you know about this folktale going? I mean, there's just so many things going on all at the same time. I definitely read a version of it growing up. Um, because I've read a lot of international folktales growing up. But a thing I want to say too is I've had a bunch of readers from Japan and Japanese American readers tell me that the most famous version and most common version of this story is slightly different from the one that I included here and the one that I read. So first of all, I just wanted to acknowledge that folktales are many and folktales are branching and iterative and that I don't know, the one that I found was the one that I remembered was the one that spoke to me that I included here, but that people who are interested in the folktales should totally go out and read all of the different versions of it that exist. And they're all fascinating and upsetting. And well, some of them are not upsetting actually, but it's in any event, there are many, many versions. And I think that's really cool as well, because I think something I was trying to think about in this piece was the kind of storytelling that we measure ourselves against in life. Like you're gonna have this life and you're gonna get married, you're gonna do these things. But even something like a written text, one spoken but then written text, exists in multiples and exists in different iterations and there are different ways of telling it. And so I was um, really interested to learn that there were different versions and humbled by that information and grateful for the people who told me. But then I was sort of intrigued by that idea of multiplicity all over. Yeah, that's really interesting about the multiplicity. I mean, I, I still can't, even, even as I reread it and reread it, I'm completely gutted by that, that part and specifically where in the piece. Like for me, it was like, oh, I mean, I was getting it, I was getting it and, and it just sort of, I needed to stop and then I was ready to finish the piece, which doesn't get any less deep. But for some reason, I had to stop. And I wanted to ask you, why exactly there in your piece? So I will say that editors are blessings. <laughs> and it was some very wonderful feedback from some people I had read the piece that I had put that last. And I think that's my, my initial, like there's some part of me that's still a broody teenage girl. And I mean that in a good way, not a bad way. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to like 
like drop that last and just leave the reader. And my, my very good editor friends uh, were like, please end with the boat. And I was like, oh, you're right, of course you're right <laughs> with the boat. So I'm not gonna take credit for that, but I do think there's something about, I tell students this all the time, the, the penultimate spot in a story collection, beats of a story, the penultimate spot on an album even, is always a place to put something that the reader needs to metabolize a little bit. And then you sort of end on a, on a moment that earns its own place, but gives the reader space to metabolize that as well. And so I should have taken my own lesson <laughs> in the first place, but I needed an outside editor to remind me of a thing that I've been teaching for years anyway. <laughs> Yeah, that's hilarious. Well, it definitely was metabolizing because the rest of the piece, it just sort of unfurls. You know, you have the shucking of the oysters and then you address the reader directly. Not about the breakup, but exactly how it all went down and sort of your thought process. And at the end, after all of this, you actually talk directly and you say, reader, I almost married him you directly talk to the reader, why did you? So it's kind of an annoying English teacher Easter egg, but so reader, I married him is a line from Jane Eyre. And it's a line, I think that gets trotted out like pretty romantically by a lot of people these days, but I have sort of weird conspiracy thoughts about Jane Eyre where I really read a lot of the direct addresses that Jane does over the course of the book as being her trying to convince herself that she's made the right choices and that her life has worked out in, in like a beautiful romance. When if you poke a little bit at Jane Eyre, it's not exactly a beautiful romance. And even, even if you think it is, it's only a beautiful romance for two of the three people who matter in that book. Mm -hmm. And so I was thinking of that line because I was thinking about how we tell our own stories and I was thinking about how we convince ourselves of our choices. And I just sort of thought, in that moment, I wanted to take what was this like canonical romantic quote unquote line and flip it on its head and be like, no, the thing to be celebrated is that I made this choice. This is yep. the thing I want to put a button on. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you for sharing that. And then the final couple questions that I have, they're about that last scene, the ones that your editors said that you should include at the end, the boat. It's just so beautiful and amazing. He shrugs. He doesn't process the, what you had told. It was Lindsay, right? Did you tell Lindsay? Yeah. Yeah. But then all of a sudden you're driving the boat and it, it's really beautiful. And also the last line, it's not just the boat scene, but also the last line I realized it was not that remarkable for a person to understand what another person needed. I guess because writing endings is so hard, <laughs> how did you do it? Like, seriously. <laughs> okay, that's nice. Thank you. Um, I think that it just felt like such a gift that day. It was so unexpected. It was extraordinary in that the Aransas Reserve is extraordinary and the birds are extraordinary and just like that part of the country is extraordinary. But it was also just like a very ordinary thing. There was so much ordinary happiness and ordinary pleasure to be found in my experience there and which I've like gone on to like find in daily life that I had to separate from tying happiness to this kind of, oh, here's the storybook thing that you're supposed to have. And so I guess I wanted to think about 
a moment of joy or happiness that doesn't fit into any kind of narrative of what you're supposed to be or supposed to have and just be like here's a moment here's a thing and it's a and it's a gift from a person who has like this small understanding it doesn't need to be a huge romance it can just be like a person who you just met to who you know is, I don't know, the lead scientist on your expedition, like that person can, can exercise understanding, even though you're basically just becoming friends with them. And so, yeah, I thought of that as kind of a hopeful thing. My students tease me, actually. They know that I usually <laughs> harp on sort of finding the more complicated, more difficult, hard ending to a short story. Um, it has been said that the only kind of happy ending I will tolerate in a fiction workshop is a gay wedding. <laughs> and it's true, that is that is my Achilles heel apparently for Schmaltz. But a bunch of students who read The Green Wife or read my novel were like, you ended on a moment of hope, you never let us do that. <laughs> and so I guess I'm a hypocrite. I don't know. But I do sometimes look for that moment of grace in the end if you could find it. Well, you thank you for it because we definitely appreciate it at the end. It, when juxtaposing comedy and, and tragedy, sometimes it's okay, right, at the end to have some hope. Yeah. And if it's, if it's small and attainable, again, I think is another kind of way of thinking of that for me, at least. Thank you, CJ Hauser. This is the first time, by the way, I said your whole name, but thank you so much for doing this. I mean, this is so wonderful. Thanks for sharing your piece. Thanks for sharing your thoughts about the piece. Thanks for talking to us. Oh my gosh, I'm so grateful for everyone in Article Club for being like close and thoughtful and personal readers. And I'm really excited to, to video chat with you all when you have book club. Yeah, it's actually, you're going to be the first author. It's amazing. So I guess if you want to, you can sort of share, what are you hoping for? What are you expecting, maybe? I don't know. I'm always excited when people respond to the piece in whatever way makes sense to them. So like, I just want to flag that there is room for, I don't know, intellectual thought, political thought, emotional, personal thought, like whatever the aspect of the piece was that you're interested in or intrigued by or alarmed by it's fair game and i'm excited to talk about it because i believe in nonfiction being discussed sort of on all of those planes that sounds great and we look so forward to it it's going to be on march 21st it's going to be at 4 p.m pacific daylight time and it's going to be great to chat with you again thanks again so much thank you so much and i'll talk to you soon and that's that I hope you enjoyed this interview with C.J. Hauser. Okay, one more time, I want to thank Ms. Hauser for answering all of our questions all the way from Oaxaca. And also, I want to thank you, listeners, for listening to this Article Club podcast. If you like what you heard, or if you're intrigued by this whole community reading experiment thing that we're trying out, please go to articleclub.org and check it out. You can read and listen to all of the previous articles and authors, and you can sign up there for free as well. Everybody have a great week, and please stay safe out there. I'll see you next week.